open your scriptures or your personal device to 1 John. I'm thankful I don't have sermon slides today. What that does do is give you a glimpse a little bit of our music team and sort of their cohesiveness, even when things break down. Uh, You saw different levels of leadership and damage control take place. And uh, I am delighted most of the time I get to uh, be here for the practice Wednesday evening. And it's usually a joyful time and a time of just practicing. But I think you got to see, even in this mishap, uh, some of the tightness and the closeness and the time that they put in so that they can lead us in worship together. So I'm very thankful for our team weekly. uh, And this is nothing compared to the problems in the world and what a joy. I don't mind sometimes just listening to the words anyway uh, and not singing. So First John, we are now in our first section. Last week was the overview of First John. We'll, we'll do a quick snapshot of that again, and then we will move forward uh, into the first section, which is the beginning preface of the letter. But I want to start with this thought because this is where John begins. Jesus had earthly parents. Think about that. And siblings and work and close friends and an address where he could be found. He had a particular voice that was his. When he spoke, people knew it was Jesus. He looked a certain way. When you saw him from a distance, you could tell it was him. He was a historical figure, but he was more than that. And that's what John is going to point to. He lived in rustic Nazareth and he ministered during a time when Rome controlled Jerusalem and when religious leaders were toxically dangerous. This is the eternal son who existed, listen to this, from timeless and limitless eternity. John is a human who's only ever known limits on his life, has to use the word beginning. But really in eternity, there's no beginning. So you have this eternal son who lived and existed from timeless and limitless eternity and entered time and space limitations and took up residence on the earth he created. Think about that. And he entered a body that he created, a human body, and he took up residence among a people who in large part rejected him and he could be seen, he could be heard and he could be touched And that is what the first four verses of John put forward to us. And in it, we also find clear echoes of John's account of the gospel, his larger work. Here's the big idea. Jesus is the word of life. Outside of him is only death. And because he is such an important figure, because life and death hang on the eternal son who then became the human Jesus, died and rose again, Because that is the case, John is going to present him as a witness, an eyewitness of this individual. Now, from last week, we should remember that the purpose of John, well, John actually expresses four purposes, but one of those statements expresses the overall purpose of the letter. So look at 1 John chapter 5 and verse 13. John says this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. So he's writing to who? Is he writing to unbelievers or believers? 
to believers. Now, his, his gospel account, what we know as the Gospel of John, but it's the Gospel of Jesus Christ according to John, is written to the world in large part, unbelievers. And he says that in John twenty thirty one. He says, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Now he says this in verse 13, chapter 5, I write these things to you who believe. Maybe believers who have read his account of the gospel. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may what? Not now that you may know that Jesus is the Christ, but that you may know that you have eternal life. It's a follow up, an assurance to those who have believed and followed Jesus Christ. John and 1 John are written that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may know and you are assured that you have eternal life. So here's the message of 1 John. John is going to offer or give to us marks of authentic Christian faith and experience. Orthodoxy. Do you remember what that word means? Straight teaching, right doctrine leads to orthopraxy, which is right or straight living. And John, in, his, in this letter, provides proofs by which one can recognize the presence or absence of genuine faith. This begins not with a set of doctrines. It begins with a person. That's the assurance. The assurance isn't that you have great theology or a depth of understanding about all the different nuances of soteriology or Christology or amartology. It's beyond that. He starts very simply with a person, a historical figure who left limitlessness and timelessness and was born in Bethlehem. And what John calls that is the beginning. There's a clear progression in the first four verses. I want you to look at these words. Go back to chapter 1. And this progression is marked by specific words. Look at verse 2. There's a word that is used twice. And the word is appeared. This assurance of eternal life has to do with someone who appeared. Look at verse 2. There's the word testify. There's a word used once in verse 2 and once in verse 3. It is the word proclaim. And then there's a word in verse 3, fellowship. And then there's a word in verse 4, joy. And we're going to see how all these connect here within the next 20 minutes. So let's look at the first opening statement that Megan read for us this morning and see what John says right out of the gate before he addresses those causing schism or those who are called antichrists or anything else that he addresses. Let's see what he says right as he begins to write these people. The first thing he says, look at verse 1, and I'm going to put it in this statement. The eternal Son's life appeared. That which was from the beginning, or what has always been from the beginning, the eternal Son has been the Word of life. Look at that last phrase in verse 1, concerning the Word of of life. It's not a word about life. It's not a homily about living. It's not even it's not even characteristics of right living. This is the word of life. As John would say in in his account of the gospel, John chapter one, verse four, listen to what he says in him. 
was life. So you, you had life breathed into you. In a sense, borrowed. Christ has the essence of life within Himself. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. This is important. Life, because in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, we see, and we're going to move from a person to trees. There are two trees in Genesis 2, verse 9. Scripture reads, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, in the middle, but there was another tree. What, what tree was that? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It says it right there. In the next chapter, because of some human interaction with a serpent and with a tree, we are introduced to sin and a curse and sadness and death. Only in the third chapter, right after this beautiful account of creation, in the third chapter we see sin and curse and sadness and death. But even there, and this is what we need to know, there was the word of life. The eternal Son, who in Him was life. And in Genesis 3, we have the promise of life then given to us that is found in a person who would crush Satan. By the way, one of those trees that is found in the garden appears in the new garden city. In the new Jerusalem. Which tree do we find again? Matter of fact, it's mentioned four times in the book of Revelation, and there is no longer a tree that if you eat of its fruit will introduce another curse. But it's the tree of life that exists in heaven, in the new city, on the new earth. Jesus is the word of life. Outside of him is only death. Look at verse 1, 1 John chapter 1. That which was from the beginning... The beginning. Does that sound familiar? What books, what books immediately rush to your mind when you hear that phrase? What books? Okay, Genesis. And what other book? The Gospel of John, where he was also probably trying to get us to think back towards Genesis. John 1, 1 to 2, listen to what he does. He does almost the same exact thing he does in 1 John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, capitalized. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So who is this Word that has eternality? Here's the connection. The Word who is God was in the beginning, eternal. And the Word, John chapter 1, verse 14, remember what it says? And the Word became something. What did it become? It became flesh. He became human. He was eternal, but He became became human. That is exactly what John is doing in 1 John chapter 1. And again, in Genesis chapter 1, we know that it says, in the beginning, right, God, the beginning of all things is meant. Now, I want you to see how John uses the word beginning. Look at 1 John chapter 2, verses 13 to 14. Twice, once in verse 13, once in verse 14, he's going to use this phrase, you know him who is from when? From the beginning. Look at chapter 3, 8, where it's actually now referencing the devil, not Jesus or God the Father. And it says this, you know that the devil was sinning from when? From the beginning. 
So we're actually going to go back. We're, we're not going to understand this term as the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. It really seems clear that what John intends for us to be thinking is go back to the beginning of all things. But here's what's important to connect now. If he's the eternal son, he was with God, he was God. How do we know it's talking about Jesus now in 1 John 1, just like John 1.14 identifies Jesus? Well, look at verses 2 to 4. His life appeared visibly. There are eyewitness accounts of his, of his person. The Messiah was manifest. That means he was revealed to be the promised one that the Old Testament pointed us to. And the apostles saw, heard, and touched him. We call that empirical evidence. And he brings, there's an emotional result. Do you see that? Verse 4, he brings what? Joy. These are tangible. These are experiential. The purpose of John using this in his gospel account and here seems to draw our attention to this. Genesis 1 verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And, and, and think about this for a second. Long before sin entered the world, the eternal son who would be the lamb of God existed. And that means this, that the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was not an accident and the serpent entering into the garden was not an accident and Adam and Eve choosing to sin was not an accident. God is sovereign over all of this. Matter of fact, first Peter, chapter one, Peter would say this when he's talking about we are forgiven through the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. First Peter one, verse 20. Listen to this. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. What was foreknown? A sacrificial lamb who was the eternal son. See, folks, the sin is not an accident. It was designed into the very fabric of God's creation as a possibility. But from the foundation of the world, the eternal son was known as the lamb of God who would, as John the Baptist said, take away the sin of the world. As an eyewitness, John says in verse one, that which was from the beginning, eternal, beyond our comprehension, before any of what we have experienced is the word of life that walked among you. Matter of fact, let's keep reading verse one. Look at what it says next. Which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. Interesting. Remember when they saw Jesus? He rose from the dead and they were all fearing and they couldn't really believe it. And he says, and he, and he offered them to what? To touch him. There's something beyond seeing. Is that, an, is that an apparition? Is that just a spirit? No. Go ahead and touch me. We have heard him. We have seen him with our eyes and we have looked upon him and have touched him with our hands concerning the word of life. John Stott said this. Such an emphasis on the historical revelation of the invisible and intangible is still needed today. Not least by the scientist trained in the empirical method or the radical who regards much in the Gospels as myths. And in parentheses, John Stott says, but you cannot demythologize the incarnation without contradicting it. And also the mystic needs it, who becomes preoccupied with his subjective religious experience to the neglect of God's objective self-revelation in Christ. That's what we have to deal with. 
this historical objective revelation of the eternal son who stands in time and proclaims that there is no forgiveness outside of him. Now, the word of life's appearance leads to authoritative proclamation. Look at verse two. The life was made manifest. That simply means it was revealed. And we have seen it. Now, remember, when John uses the word we, who is he talking about? Because there's we and us. And typically when he uses we in this letter, he is talking about the apostles, the true eyewitnesses of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, when they chose one to replace Judas, he had to be an eyewitness of Jesus Christ. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father. Interesting. John one verse one. And was made manifest to us, interestingly, John chapter 1, verse 14. So here's what's happening. The manifestation of this historical, eternal Son to the few, to the apostles, becomes the proclamation to the many, the world. John uses two verbs. Look at these verbs. This, this apostolic ministry involves both testimony and proclamation. He says, we testify... And we proclaim both words imply authority, but of a different kind. The word testify indicates the authority of experience. For instance, when you give your personal testimony, that is your experience of coming to know Jesus Christ and believing in who he said he is and following him. It's your personal testimony. To testify is an activity which belongs properly here to an eyewitness. For instance, Luke 24, verse 48. You are witnesses of these things. These, they were eyewitnesses. In Acts 1.8, he says this. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Proclaim is a little different. It is also authoritative but a bit differently nuanced than the word testimony, and it indicates the authority of a commission. And then the apostles received the commission from Christ himself. And that authoritative commission, you will see at the end of Matthew, you see it in Luke, you will see one in Acts, and you see one in Mark. Now, that proclamation of the word of life, that we are testifying to you, we have seen him, we are proclaiming to you with authority, that leads to, and you're not expecting this, are you ready? It leads to a word that we are so familiar with and so misunderstand that we're not expecting him to use it here. It leads to fellowship. Does that surprise you? The eternal son is revealed as a human. We've seen him, we've heard him, we've touched him. And we're proclaiming this to you because of our personal testimony. And now that leads to fellowship. Doesn't that kind of seem like underwhelming? Well, no, let's look at that. Look at verse three. Here's the connection. That which we have seen testify and heard, we proclaim at our commission also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Kind of sounds funny. The apostles aren't writing it so the apostles' joy can be complete. He is now including other believers who weren't eyewitnesses 
We are writing these things to you and testifying and proclaiming so that now you're part of this, in a sense, this apostolic band that our joy fellowship is complete. Do you know that the proclamation was not simply for knowledge? For doctrinal truth intellectually? Most of us have had the experience of running into someone who knows the scriptures much better than we do who has studied doctrine much more broadly than we have, who may even have letters after their name. But some of those very people deny Jesus Christ as God or as God in the flesh. Some of those people can be the most argumentative and divisive and opinionated people. And they even hold church office. And they are well-read and well-studied and they can debate you into a corner. That's not what John is talking about here. The proclamation was not simply for knowledge, but for something immediate and experiential. The immediate is fellowship. Fellowship denotes this, having something in common. So here's what John does. John unites true belief in Christ with community. A right understanding of Jesus shapes how we live together. You know what that looks like? Preferring others more than myself. Esteeming others more highly than I esteem myself. It means being clothed with humility. It means what Proverbs says, let, an, let another one praise you and not your own lips. It means being kind one to another. It means bearing with one another in love. That word would never have to be used unless that other person was absolutely annoying. That's what it looks like. What believers have in common, though, is participation in the grace of God, salvation in Christ, and the indwelling Spirit of God. And this is what makes us a body. Gary Burge in his commentary said this, Christian community is partnership in experience. It is the common living of people who have a shared experience of Jesus Christ. Christian fellowship is triangular, he says. My life in fellowship with Christ your life in fellowship with Christ and my life in fellowship with yours. That means you do not have to like to play the electric guitar to have fellowship with me. Though I love to play the electric guitar. You don't have to like the same foods as I like. You don't have to like fishing. You don't have to like being alone, which I like too. Right? For us to have fellowship. We should carefully question methods of evangelism and mission strategies that fail to lead decisions at large emotional gatherings into committed communities of believers where fellowship is happening. Because John says this right at the outset of this letter, that the right understanding of Jesus testified and proclaimed leads to what? It leads to fellowship. Not loose, unattached peoples. They fellowship. They have something in common. Proclamation leads to fellowship, faith communities. So we should also then question not just that kind of evangelism strategy, but we should question the kind of church life whose cohesion is based on a social network, not unlike fitness centers or coffee shops or patriot historical groups or musical concerts. Our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son. And this is going to be important for us to hear because 
If the right understanding of Jesus leads to a right fellowship, then diversity must happen. Color, nationality, income bracket, political preferences, musical tastes, and a thousand other things are not the basis of our unity. We have fellowship with one another. Why? Because we have a shared common experience in Jesus Christ who has restored our relationship to the Father. That's what we have in common. Jesus Christ, and not even our warped American version of who Jesus is. Jesus, for how He has revealed Himself in the Scriptures, is our common unity. The apostolic proclamation has that immediate result, fellowship. And we see this, we see this early on in the church. Acts 2.42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Right? The right teaching about Jesus. And the fellowship. Right teaching, orthodoxy, leads to right living, orthopraxy, which is fellowship. The second immediate result, or we might say the byproduct of proclamation and fellowship, is joy. Look at verse 4. And we are writing these things, the truths about who Jesus is, we're testifying it as eyewitnesses, we're proclaiming it authoritatively, we're in this common bond together, we're living this out in community, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. Fellowship in Christ leads to joy. Not fellowship around my personal hurts or my personal preferences, but fellowship in Christ. This is what it looks like. In fellowship, we admonish one another. We exhort one another. Keep following Him. Or as Paul says, don't grow weary in well-doing, for in due season you will reap if you don't faint. Or we will keep saying, learn more about Him. Or we would point each other to John 17, 17. Sanctify them in your truth. Your word is truth. Or as Hebrews says, we are admonishing one another and exhorting one another while it is still today. Right? That's what we are doing. That's what fellowship is. It's not us gathering in our own little groups because we really like one another and we share the same hobbies or we share the same political preferences. It is because we have Christ in common and we have agreed to make Him the most important, the preeminent one. That's where church unity comes in. In verse 4, notice again, the we, we are writing these things, moves to our joy, expressing the common fellowship that we have, the commonality of Christ. And this is interesting that he starts this way. Because in light of what he's going to address in the next five chapters, schism, antichrists, wrong doctrine, all of a sudden at the beginning of the letter, fellowship and joy stand out. And this is the correct order. Here it is. The eternal Son is the Word of life. We testify and proclaim who He truly is. Based upon that preaching, we have fellowship with God. We gather together, which is the church. And the result of that then should be, if our focus is truly Christ, it should be joy. So, that's going to beg a question. Someone might argue that they lack joy because they have never seen Jesus. Or it might sound like this. Didn't the apostles have an advantage because they, they did walk with Him? John says that. They talked with Him. 
They touched him. Do they necessarily have an advantage over what you and I have access to today? Like, is it fair for John to say this is what is true and it leads to joy? But John saw him. Are we somehow second class citizens because we've never seen him? And is that joy only reserved for those who could hold his hands and hear his voice? One of those apostles, Peter, said this in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And listen to this. And rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Where does that joy come from if I've never seen him obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls? See, there's something that Jesus came to accomplish. Forgiveness of sin and right standing with God that brings joy. Even though you've never seen him, you can love him. Even though you've never seen him, you you can rejoice with joy that is inexpressible because he has forgiven you and restored a relationship to God. And that brings inexpressible joy. So then... Another question follows, then why is it that so many Christians we talk to are not currently experiencing this joy? If Peter, James, and John had no advantage over us because they got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration, but we didn't. Well, remember, nine others didn't either. Right? And they came down and there was, there was another problem from that. Okay? Then why is it? Peter says this in 2 Peter 1.19, same chapter. We have the prophetic word, Scripture, more fully confirmed to which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Do you know in the dark, a lamp is noticeable, it's conspicuous and helpful, but temporary? Why is it temporary? We will follow by the light of the lamp. It stands out and he says this, pay attention to it as a lamp shining in a dark place until something, until the day dawns. And the morning star rises in your hearts. See, a greater light is coming. By the way, in John, John's account of the gospel, and in 1 John, you know what one of the key themes is? Jesus as light. Until the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this first of all, that no, and then he returns back to Scripture, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Scripture does not have its origins in humanity, but God. Verse 21, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And the Scriptures give that internal evidence that that is the case. Scripture is more more fully confirmed. Now, three verses earlier, listen to what Peter said. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you testimony, the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to what he says. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Back in the Old Testament, David would say this in Psalm 1611. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But I think it's also helpful for us to note that complete joy is not consistently possible in this world of sin and brokenness because complete fellowship with God is not possible in a broken and sinful world. But John is writing these things. He's telling you who Jesus is. He's testifying and proclaiming it. 
that is supposed to lead naturally into this commonness of fellowship, into life together, and that results or should result in joy. So at the center of our faith, this is the conclusion, is a person and an event. Jesus Christ, His life, death, and resurrection. It is the entrance of the eternal Son into history, into His creation as a definitive revelation of God. In that case, the incarnation of Jesus Christ in taking flesh cannot be ignored. It is definitive and decisive. So we would say this after the first four verses. There is no life if Jesus Christ, the word of life, is not at the center and received for who he said he is. God in the flesh, the eternal son who entered history to save the world. The greatest rescue mission the world has ever known. You can close your scriptures. While living in Nairobi, an Indian friend, Dinesh, invited my family to an outdoor lunch where they were preparing tandoori chicken and rice palau. And the reason he had designed this lunch is so that I could witness to his two Hindu brothers who would not listen to him. And meals take a while to prepare if you prepare them authentically. So we're sitting there in in the Kenyan sun and the kids are keeping themselves occupied and we're engaging in discussion, small talk at first. And I was surprised what hit me early on in our days in East Africa was how comfortable Hindus were dialoguing about religion. Very comfortable. And even when, you, even when you transition into the topic of Jesus, they are very comfortable talking about Jesus. Matter of fact, their knowledge is quite staggering about who he is historically. And sitting there scratching my head, I was like, we've got to get, we've got to get past sort of this benign talk of just religion and Jesus as another God. And I finally asked the question that, that brought the whole conversation to a complete stop. And I simply asked, I said, who do, who do Hindus say Jesus is? I said, do you believe his own claims about himself? Is Jesus eternal God? Is he the way, the truth, the life? I added, because that really is the issue. Either Jesus is the Son of God and the only Savior of men, or he is not. Who do you say he is? And after a few seconds of awkward silence that seemed like minutes, both men, both brothers looked at each other. And I think Dinesh was looking on because he was so curious about his brother's response to that direct question. And they said, and I believe I've used this illustration before, they simply said, we don't talk about that. See, it is definitive and decisive when you say the right thing about who Jesus Christ is. Either they remove their trust from three million gods plus Jesus to just Jesus alone. Because that is what Scripture teaches. He is the way, the life. No one goes into the Father except through him. They can't just add him. So they must. This is what it looks like in their world. Dinesh's two brothers must turn from their trust in sort of this, this Hindu trinity of Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva and trust in Christ alone. That is exactly what John is writing in 1 John. Jesus Christ is definitive. Jesus is the word of life. Outside of him is only what? Death. Death. 